I can remember being in college classes and professors talking about this new thing and thinking, this is just magic. I mean, how can this even be real? So back in the early 1980s, Mitch Morrissey was working with DNA before anybody even really understood it. He was already using it to solve crime. He was the DA in Denver County. He prosecuted, and I want y'all to hear these numbers, 6,000 felony cases and about 1,800 misdemeanors every year. He was prosecutor of the year. He was the recipient of the Distinguished Service Award. He received the Patriots Award from the Department of Defense. This is an accomplished trial lawyer. The only reason he ain't there now is because of term limits. In 1999, Mitch Morrissey was sworn in as the DA for Boulder County, Colorado to aid in the 13-month-long grand jury investigation into the death of John JonBenet Ramsey. He continued to advise on that until 2003. In 2003, he, along with the Denver Crime Lab director, Greg Labarge, 81 charges have come from that development of the cold case project and they have gone as far back as 1980. He was also a big key supporter of Katie's law that says convicted felons will submit their DNA. He wrote a book and y'all know how I preach all the time. The history of crime will tell the history of our country It'll tell the history of your town, your state, your city. His book, Denver DA's Office, A History of Crime in the Mile High City. He goes from 1869 to 2021. And he starts with an event where he says, and I quote, hangings were popular public events. Y'all, I am so happy to introduce y'all to the genius that is joining us tonight, Mitch Morrissey. Well, thank you for having me. I appreciate being on your podcast. Well, this is going to be a tremendous evening for everybody, because when you start talking in your book and you're telling of this hanging event that was in front of 3,000 people, you say there were 100 vigilantes. True crime has always been public entertainment. Yeah, that's absolutely true. I mean, when you think about it, justice was swift, certainly here in Denver when we were talking about the frontier. So usually somebody would uh, commit a murder. Uh, they would have a trial. Now, sometimes there were some vigilantes that would go down to the jail and get them out and they wouldn't have a trial. And then they usually would would hang them or lynch them from the nearest tree. But uh, it was almost that quick in some of the early cases in Denver. There really was no place to put them until the state penitentiary was open. So they would get their trial for a murder. Uh, usually then they would be convicted within a day of the homicide or the next day. There wasn't much of an appeal. And oftentimes the jury were citizen jurors and it was kind of before there were elected prosecutors, and then they would usually hang them 
either in a place where they could draw a lot of people or the place where the murder took place, which I thought was interesting, to actually take the person back to where the murder occurred and hang them there if there was a tree. Now, I don't know if your audience has ever been to Denver, but we don't have a lot of natural trees in Denver. We're on the plains. And so the about the only trees were these old cottonwood trees that would grow along the Platte River, the Cherry Creek. And those would usually be the place where they would take somebody and hang them if they were going to use a tree to do it. They would draw a big crowd. And if there was enough notice, everybody in the territory would show up and it would be kind of like almost like a picnic or a fair, county fair type thing. And the, the main attraction was the hanging that was going to happen that afternoon. It was the exact same way in Georgia. I worked a crime scene 70 years after the event that was the last mass lynching in Georgia. And the reason there wasn't more evidence there is because people came and took souvenirs. They took shell casings. They took rope. They took clothing off the victims. They took jewelry. It's nothing new. You know, another thing in your book that I found amazing, I used to teach college, and sometimes I would say, there are no new crimes. And sometimes they would try to say, well, what about a drive-by shooting? And I would say, well, there's evidence that Native Americans on horseback would fire arrows on fire into houses. That's a drive-by shooting. It's nothing new, right? And sometimes they would try to stump me, but again, there was always a corresponding historical reference to the same thing. And when you talk about Cheap John in your book from 1869, what was fascinating to me is they made a point for everybody to know not only was he a thief, but he was a pimp. And I would have students that didn't think pimps came into play until the 70s. In Denver, and it's in the book, we had a large group of French prostitutes and French men that lived off of those prostitutes. And actually, at the turn of the last century, we had uh, a serial murderer who was going in and killing uh, women in the brothels that we had. They would have small rooms that were right on the street. And, you know, we had three or four of them that were murdered by the same individual they believed. Now, of course, they didn't have DNA and the kind of things that we have that tie serial rapists together, but they all were strangulations. They all occurred on the same street, Market Street. They all occurred to the same type of victim. And then they at one point brought in a clairvoyant to try to figure out who was responsible for these murders, and she ended up being strangled to death, and that's in the book. So, you know, the book has a lot of history in it. It has some interactions with Native Americans. Some of the district attorneys that I wrote about, each chapter is a different district attorney, mm -hmm. served in the Civil War. Uh, so we go back quite a ways. He's got Doc Holliday, Bat Masterson, H.H. H. Holmes, Bundy. Y'all just get it and get ready because you're not going to want to put it down. I promise you. And then we have some celebrities in there like Bob Dylan, who was here. <laughs> yep. And uh, and Kareem Abdul-Jabbar got in trouble smoking some marijuana when he was early on in his career and came through Denver. So it goes from, you know, right after the Civil War, basically, all the way through to when I served as district attorney from... Uh, 
I served from 2005 to 2017. And then it talks about the current district attorney that followed me in office. There were a lot of them because they usually served very short terms. Uh, one of the most interesting one was the second. His name was Merrick Rogers. Merrick Rogers did just about everything. He was the district attorney. He was on our Supreme Court. He was in the legislature when they started the law school at the University of Colorado, the first law school in the area. He was a law professor, uh, just an amazing guy. And at the end of his life, I think he was ill and he was up in Steamboat Springs, Colorado. He went down to a hardware store and he bought himself about a quarter of a stick or half a stick of dynamite, went down by the river down there with a cigar, lit the dynamite and blew himself up because I think he was dying anyway. So, you know, so there's biographies of everybody that served as district attorney. And I put in all of the different police officers that were killed in the line of duty and what happened to the people that killed them. So it, really, we tried to cover the different crimes that occurred during the era of each one of the district attorneys. It's about a 300-page book, but it, it's, it's a good read. And, you know, it's kind of funny when I hear you talk and, you know, you sometimes refer to courtroom 10. For me and my background, it would be courtroom 8. But, again, it's that close-knit group of people. It's that kind of coming up and learning your way in this business. And you had a death penalty case where you did not see your children awake for two years. Yeah, it was the murder of a little girl, a little African-American girl who she was killed within about a month of John JonBenet Ramsey. But because of where she was killed and the nature of her family, it didn't get a lot of attention. We used DNA to solve it within a couple of days. Uh, we caught a man that took her, her and another six-year-old out the back door of the house, kidnapped them. She ran, uh, the brother of the other girl ran into them, was able to get the one girl to go away with them. But because of a promise of some candy, little Ashley Gray stayed with a man she referred to as Uncle John, John Morris. He took her down to a loading dock and brutally raped her. We were able to get DNA, blood from her pants, from his pants, her blood, even though he had taken those pants home and had his girlfriend wash them. And we spent about two years then seeking the death penalty for Mr. Morris. You know, you work on those cases night and, well, I didn't work all nights, but when you have little kids that are four and six or two and four, you leave before they're awake and you get home, they're asleep. And it was pretty amazing that my uh, wife did everything basically for them. I mean, I'd see them when they were in their cribs or when they're in their bed. Uh, but, you know, I went two, pretty much two solid years without seeing them awake. We ended up getting a first degree murder conviction, but it was a strange conviction because it was first degree murder, felony murder where we had sexual assault on a child as the underlying felony. But the jury could not agree, even though it was a strangulation where he strangled this little girl to death. They could not agree on first-degree murder after deliberation. 
So they decided, hey, we convicted him of first degree murder. We don't have to worry about this other form. And you need that other form, or you did at the time in Colorado, in order to, you needed some mental state for the homicide, not just the felony. Uh, and so we weren't able to go forward on the death penalty on it. But, you know, for your listeners, and I'm not sure in Georgia, but here in Colorado, they have since gotten rid of the death penalty and the death penalty was extremely rare. So when they got rid of it two or three years ago, we had, I think, maybe four people on death row, none of them out of my jurisdiction, but uh, they commuted their sentences to life without parole, and we no longer have the death penalty in Colorado. So y'all think about two years where you're missing birthdays, anniversaries, just general Wednesday night being with your family. And after that case that took him away from his family every day from dark to dark, he gets a call. And that call says, we need you in Boulder to help take over the grand jury on the JonBenet Ramsey case. There was some problems with the district attorney's office up there. So they brought in a former chief deputy of mine who was working in Pennsylvania to run the grand jury. So when you say to run it, I actually did not run it. By the time uh, I was asked to be part of the team, um, Mike Kane had been already brought in to work exclusively on that case. I was coming off this death penalty case, and my boss at the time was Bill Ritter, who was the DA that was term limited before I got elected. And he said, Mitch, I need you to go up and, and be part of this Ramsey case because nobody knows anything about DNA, and you are the top DNA guy in the state of Colorado or one of the top in the nation. And so... I told him, no, I said, I can't do it, Bill. I just finished that death penalty case on Morris. And that's where I explained that I hadn't seen my kids awake for two years and I owed them. I did not, I could not get involved 18 months after the fact, trying to put together again, a crime that I knew there was DNA, but at the time <laughs> it wasn't significant. There was really no issue with it. A couple weeks later, Mike Kane knocked on my door, and Mike was my first chief deputy in the Denver DA's office. And when you talked at the beginning about somebody having your back, that really was true with Mike. He always had my back. He was one of my favorite people to work with and to work for. And he said, Mitch, I need you. And there were my two kids. My wife was out somewhere. And I said, Mike, look at these kids. I, you know, they need me to be around. And I reluctantly decided to go there. Uh, I went to the University of Colorado, so I had a lot of experience in Boulder. So the first day I decided that I'd go up to the Colorado Bureau of Investigations, which was the lab that they were using. And since I was the DNA guy, I'd meet with their serologist DNA woman, which was somebody that I knew. She had worked in Denver. Uh, she was very good at what she did. Kathy Dressel was her name. I met with her. I sat down with Kathy and was talking about the DNA in this little girl's underwear. I knew that there was DNA there and there was potential 
mixture or contamination. And without mi missing a beat, and me knowing Kathy for years, she said, well, what about that other stain, Mitch? And I said, Kathy, I've been on this case for less than a day. I don't know what you're talking about. There's a second stain in these panties. And she said, oh, yeah, there's a second stain. And I said, and you haven't tested it. It's been 18 months. She said, no, the DA told me to keep it for the defense. And I said, it's separate. And she said, yes, it's a completely separate stain from the one I did test. I said, is it big enough to cut in half? Because, you know, you, when you consume a sample, uh, the defense then doesn't have anything that they can, they can test or retest. And so you have to be concerned about that, even though we didn't have anybody in custody or charged. She said, yeah, there's enough. So she cut it in half and tested it. And lo and behold, we got back those results. There was almost a full male profile. It didn't belong to anybody that we searched. We had a database already built. There was enough to put into CODIS and it didn't match anybody in CODIS. So I went from a case that supposedly had no DNA issues to the issue in that case, is this mystery DNA? And it continues to be the issue in that case to this day. I firmly believe it was that DNA and that profile alone that kept anybody from being charged by the Boulder DA for the murder of that little girl. Is there any way to do ancestry on the DNA profile you have? Like any other DNA method, and you said I've been doing DNA since the late 80s, and that's true. The first case I did was in 1989 in Denver. But every method that I know of that's ever been used for forensic has limitations. And the limitations that we have when it comes to sequencing is if it's a mixture, and it's a mixture of about 50-50, that's a problem. This, remember, is blood. The blood is hers. The male profile is probably saliva. The one thing I can tell your listeners, it's not sperm. But we know it's male from the testing because she doesn't have a Y chromosome. So we know it's a mixture and it's about a 50-50 mixture. That is a problem when you start to sequence DNA because you don't know who's contributing what. I've spoken to a group up there about what I thought and think we could do on that case. But I think they're doing the conservative thing. They're waiting to see if there's advances. And the one thing I always tell people about DNA, you don't know what we're going to be doing in five years. Five years before the Golden State Killer, I would not have told you we would have been using DNA and genealogy to solve cases. The one thing I do know is this happened on Christmas. Most people know where they were in, on Christmas. There's photographs of them with their families. Um, if this DNA was deposited at some other time, most likely somebody's going to have a pretty good alibi and an awful lot of witnesses. That is one of the things about when that crime took place that I think is interesting. But the reason no one was ever charged, and if you remember correctly, the grand jury wanted to indict the Ramses. And I'll tell you, I really had to sit down and explain 
to some people that didn't understand DNA exactly what the major problem was there. So you may have probable cause that somebody did something, but that's not the standard when you get into trial. When you get into trial, you have to prove it beyond a reasonable doubt. And that is the highest standard in the law of the United States. Probable cause is one of the lowest standards. So the grand jury may or may not have gotten it right, finding probable cause. But the one thing I knew was there was reasonable doubt as long as that DNA was out there. And I sat down and had to convince at least five district attorneys that were giving advice and on that case. And then after it was over, I don't know if you remember, but then we sat down with the governor of the state of Colorado who had to make a decision if he was going to take the Boulder DA off the case and put a special prosecutor who would have been our attorney general to continue the investigation. And for two days, we sat down and explained everything that we had in the investigation, explained why we could not go forward with any suspect at that time. And he agreed with us and he did not appoint the attorney general to be the special prosecutor. You know, it, it's one of those tragic cases. It's one of those cold cases out there. It gets a lot of attention for a whole lot of reasons. My hope is someday that that DNA will be identified. Uh, I'd love to be part of it because I was part of it at the beginning. I was the one that asked for the testing. I would love to work with the Boulder Police Department again. You know, they get criticized a lot for that case. And I got to tell you that the individuals that I worked with on that case, now they weren't necessarily at the scene. They weren't the first ones called. You know, I would really like to get to the end of that mystery. If we can use, utilize this technique in some way and get them answers, I'd be real proud about that. Well, I got a few more questions. I talked to John Ramsey and I asked him specifically about the garage and had that been tested for DNA. Whoever tied that knot should have left some touch DNA. When I was involved in the case, there was no there was no technique that would have allowed you to get down to the level, the few cells that they can do touch DNA with. Touch DNA, you talk about getting DNA samples sometimes in, done in a half an hour. Now, that's more expensive. So I would have been done with the case by the time that they would have sent different items of clothing, not the garage itself, but the, the rope. I know that they did ask the Bodie lab to do additional work on different items, but I was not involved in that. And I don't believe I've ever seen the results of that work, but obviously that work didn't lead to a solution. You as a prosecutor, when you look at a three-page ransom note with the word attache, you can pretty much take Burke out of it. If the FBI says they can't rule this person in or out, you know, you've got this stage scene, you've got a master bedroom that looks like one person slept in the bed because the other half is made up, it looks like. You've got a 911 call that might have some issues to it. You've got somebody that fed the child pineapple. They're going up and down these three stories. I mean, it's not just a, mem you know, like a mystery. 
to me, it's one of those cases where every single thing that could go wrong to aid the killer is what happened. The cause and mechanism of death was one of the most compelling things to me. This little girl suffered a major blow to her head, basically cracked her skull from front to back, didn't break her skin so it didn't bleed. Had she bled, we would have known where she got attacked. We would have known, you know, if as she was moved through the house, if she was moved, where she was moved. But we didn't have the luxury of that. But she had this massive brain. You know, anybody goes online, there's probably a picture of that injury to her skull because just about everything about this case is online. The saddest part of that case for me was that she then was never conscious again. So there'd be no reason to tie her up. There'd be no reason to do these slip knots or put anything over her mouth, a piece of duct tape. And the one thing I'll tell you, if she'd been conscious, that the binding that she had was so loose and so flimsy, she would have reached up and tore that duct tape off of her face. It was one little strip of duct tape over her mouth. It didn't go around her head. They, she would have just torn that duct tape off and started screaming, but she was never conscious again. And then through the mechanism of death that happens when you have somebody that suffers a closed head injury like that, we all know you hit your thumb with a hammer, it's going to swell up. Well, what happens when you get hit in the head like this, your brain starts to swell up. And because your skull is so good at protecting your brain and it contains your brain, there isn't a lot of place for your brain to then expand while it's swelling. And what happens is it goes down your spinal cord and eventually all of those things that control the beating of your heart, your breathing, your lungs, that's all cut off by the swelling of the brain, and that's what kills you. And that's was happening to this little girl at the time she was strangled to death. There are people out there that believe that, you know, she got those things happen close in time, and they did not. There were hours between when she was struck in the head and when she was strangled to death. Another thing that I picked up on in this whole thing, you've got John Bonet with the right accent, you've got Garot, you've got Attaché. There's some French influence there. I mean, you can't miss it as far as I'm concerned. There was a little French dog they had. It had a French name. Uh, there was some of those indicators were there. But again, you got to put up or shut up when you're a prosecutor. And you can sit there and opine about what you thought and what your theory is and all of that. But when it comes to charging parents of a lost a little girl of a crime like first degree murder, you better have your ducks in the order and you better be ready to prove it beyond a reasonable doubt. One last question. What do you think about the line in the autopsy where it says chronic vaginal injury? Do you think she was assaulted by somebody close to her or at a school or somewhere over a period of time? What do you make of that sentence? Well, there was clearly vaginal injury to her that occurred near her death. Now, the word chronic implies that it had been going on for some time. There were some indications 
that she had started wetting the bed again after being potty trained, that she was having problems with that kind of thing at school where she would have to have accidents. And, you know, there's, those are indicators that something of a sexual nature may have be occurring with her. Uh, so, I mean, all of those things we knew about, all of those things we presented to the grand jury. Um, she may or may not have been, but the one thing we found was that at the time, most of the studies around that by experts were being done on live girls. And there were very few experts that could give us an opinion on a girl that had died. And, and so, you know, and, and with children, sometimes when you see autopsies, things are a little bit different and you've got to look for maybe an expert, for instance, not in this case, but uh, for on strangulation of a child where there isn't the common marks that you see when a full grown woman is strangled to death, those kinds of things. So when you go at the time, we go looking for an expert that could tell us if there were things about this little girl's anatomy that would indicate that she'd been previously sexually assaulted, there was really nobody out there that could do that. The one thing we couldn't find was a pathologist that could give us an opinion on if the vaginal trauma that she had was something that had been reoccurring. Sir, do you think you can explain for you know to everybody IgG? Absolutely, uh, it's the name has changed a couple of times, and sometimes it was forensic genetic genealogy. Now it's investigative genetic genealogy, and now some people are referring to it as forensic investigative genetic genealogy. But it's all the same, and basically what it is is that when the law enforcement agency has done their work and they have a profile, and that profile doesn't match anybody in the case, and they put it into CODIS, and it doesn't match any of the millions and millions of people that are in the U.S. CODIS, 18 million people, the case remains cold. And so the question is, what are you going to do? And what we do is we work with law enforcement. We have a great partner here in the metropolitan area that actually provides the funding to do our work, and that is our Metro Denver Crime Stoppers. And basically, they'll have a reward on a 25-year-old murder, and they've never solved it. They've never paid the reward. They pay us to solve the case. Uh, they pay us about $5,000 a case. We get the DNA sequenced, which is different than what they do in the crime lab. Uh, once it's sequenced, then there are two commercial databases, one called Family Tree DNA and one called GEDmatch that allow law enforcement to search those databases to see if there's anybody in the database that might be related to the individual that committed this horrendous crime. And their brutal rapes, murders, rape, murders, those kind of crimes. The women, women are always the victim of these crimes or children. 90% of the cases that we solve where DNA plays a role, the victims are women. And the 10% that are left, about 9.5, 9.8 are kids. So this is a technique 
And DNA is a technique that helps us catch men that rape and murder the women in our communities. And that's the same as in Georgia and Colorado and across the United States. It's really important to do DNA in cases where it's appropriate. We sequence the DNA, we upload it, and what we get are people, we don't get the people's DNA. What we get is what they share with the person that we're looking for. And we may then have somebody that is a third cousin. And what we start to do then with our genealogists, and that's the genealogy part of it, we start to build out a family tree from that individual that's in the database that may be a third cousin. And we go up the family tree. We're looking for what's called the most recent common ancestor. And when we find that most recent common ancestor, and it's usually a couple, maybe great-grandparents, great-great-grandparents, we start down the family tree looking for the individual that was at the location, you know, in the city of Denver. We've had two brothers that came back. One had never been in Colorado, and the other had been in Colorado and actually been in a lot of trouble in Colorado. So we come down the tree looking for the individual, an individual that might fit. And when we find that individual, we give that name to law enforcement and they do a full-blown investigation. Sometimes they get the individual's DNA. They may get it through a court order. They may get it through a search warrant. They may get it through uh, somebody taking trash, you know, taking the trash after the person has put it out and it's being taken to the dump, you know, a trash run, that kind of thing. If somebody is a smoker, throws down a cigarette butt, their DNA is going to be on a cigarette butt. So we are looking for the person's DNA. And then um, once we get that DNA, it's, it is compared to the DNA from the crime scene through the methodology that was done at the crime lab, and we'll have a hit. And if we get that hit, the individual's then arrested and charged with whatever the crime is that we are looking into. These databases will only let us do violent crimes like rape, murder, um, some of those types of crimes. They will not let us do genetic genealogy on a theft case, a burglary case. They prohibit that. So it's a limited number of cases, but it's a great technique. It's been utilized for about the last five years and hundreds of otherwise unsolved cold cases have been solved through investigative genetic genealogy. That's what we do. My company's called United Data Connect. If you have any law enforcement interested in contacting me, just go to our website. Sir, I appreciate you so much. I appreciate your career. I appreciate that you are a third generation lawyer. Your whole family has been dedicated to public service, especially your wife. I mean, taking it on all by herself is a tremendous asset to you and the citizens of Colorado. Yeah, my wife is incredible. Uh, she raised $13 million so we could open a family violence center here in Denver. We didn't have one. Um, I was committed to getting this done, but I could not have done, done it without her fundraising. She was able to raise that $13 million, and we got the Rosandum Center open just before I was term limited and left office. Yeah, she's incredible. You know, and of course, my dad and my grandfather 
I owe a lot to them. I wouldn't have been a trial lawyer without my father. And my grandfather was the longest serving U.S. attorney for Colorado. He served under Roosevelt and Truman, and uh, he had a great career. So, yes, thank you so much for bringing them up. And, you know, of course, my wife was an ally of mine throughout the political campaigns, but she really played a significant role in helping victims of domestic violence and their children here in Denver by getting the Roseannum Center funded and running. And then she, of course, served on the board for years. We're still involved in that center. It's making a huge difference in our city. Well, you've got a solid Zone 7, sir. And again, I appreciate you. Y'all, I'm going to end Zone 7 the way that I always do, with a quote. The greatest history book ever written is the one hidden in our DNA. Spence Wells. I'm Cheryl McCollum, and this is Zone 7.